Father, we have the Word open before us because, Father, we desire to know from You and from the Holy Spirit what it is You have placed here for us on this very day. Father, Your Word is living. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And, Father, we come to it with great expectation because we know, Father, that those who devote themselves to the Word of God are the children of God. That those, Father, who place Your Word first and foremost in their hearts and minds are the ones, Father, who are most eager to know what You have for us to know. Those are the ones, Father, who are most eager to follow You, to hear from You. For it is by Your Word, Father, that You save us. It is by Your Word, Father, that You sanctify us. And it is by Your Word, Father, ultimately in the form of Your Son, Jesus Christ. In that way, we will be glorified and with You forever. So, Father, the Word is our focus now. But, Father, we do not know it, we do not read it, we do not understand it because we, in our own power, have come to know it. We know it, Father, because the Holy Spirit desires to reveal it to us. And therefore, as I teach, Father, and as the body gathered listens, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be active, to be working in this room, to be speaking through me and into the hearts of the men and women who hear what we say. And I praise you, Father, for the opportunity to speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 6. Imagine, if you will, just for a moment that you're standing in Jesus' shoes, that you're essentially Him in His ministry. Imagine for a moment that you're Jesus, just for a second. You've come into this world, and as you've come into this world, you've started your ministry, but you've done it knowing that in three short years, you're going to be offering yourselves over for the sins of the world. You're effectively going to be dying on the cross. And you know that you're going to leave behind, when you do die, a world that has to ultimately hear the message of the gospel. A world that's going to have in it a church, the body of Christ, and that church is going to have the responsibility of carrying your message forward to the world, to those who've never heard it before. And that message needs to persist. It needs to grow. It needs to persist. It needs to affect the world for a long time because it's going to be going on in that way until you return. You are going to start a ministry, but in only three years' time, you have to start something that persists until you return not for thousands of years later. And you've selected 12 men. We said this in a lesson just a couple weeks ago. You've selected 12 men who have the responsibility to start that process. And you've got three years with them. How do you prepare them for that task? How do you get them ready to do what they're going to have to do to spread this worldwide church from just 12 people? And you've only got three years to do it. And it's even worse than that because you have these 12 men who've been inundated, who've been saturated with teaching from their religious leaders that is 180 degrees from the truth. They start not at zero, so to speak. They start at negative 100. You have to unteach as many things as you're going to have to teach to put these men in the right place to do the mission you have them ready to do. And they can't possibly understand everything that you need them to understand. They can't possibly be completely 100% prepared in just three years, even standing and walking with Jesus himself. And they can't appreciate the resistance they're going to encounter. They can't begin to appreciate how difficult their job is going to be. And you only have three years. That's quite a task. That's quite a dilemma if you're Christ. Of course, he was God himself in the form of man, so if anyone could do it, it would be Jesus, obviously. And he wasn't going to leave them alone. He was going to send them the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who is even here now with us. So they weren't doing it in their own power. 
But it's still going to be difficult. And now what we're beginning to study in Luke chapter 6 is the first of Jesus' attempts to train these men in the ways that they're going to have to understand life and ministry in order to do the job he has them, uh, that he has for them to do. If you want to look at all four Gospels in a unique way, here's the way I would suggest you look at them. Think of them in this way. They're essentially a record of the Apostles' training program. They're like a documentary on how Christ prepared these Apostles for this ministry that was going to have to follow his death. And we're going to see in this documentary, if you will, through the rest of Luke, their weaknesses. We're going to see their confusions at times about what they're being taught. They're going to have lots of questions, and we even get to hear Jesus answering their questions, which is an interesting thing, because we're essentially there like we're one of the apostles. And then we're going to see Jesus frustrated with them at their lack of understanding from time to time. And at some point, at some point in his ministry, Jesus is going to have to provide instructions to them on what it really means to be righteous. I mean, that's sort of the good starting point, wouldn't you agree? If you're going to start these men spreading a gospel which ultimately leads to righteousness, to salvation by faith, you want to begin with some definitions. If you've done coursework in college, you know it's quite common when you start a new class, one of the first things an instructor does is he says, let's define some terms. Let's make sure we're all talking the same language. Well, Christ does that. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may never have heard the Sermon on the Mount described as a defining of terms, but that's essentially what it is. And it begins in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. That's where we start today. I'll begin reading in verse 20. And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. We call these verses, scholars call these verses in Luke, the Beatitudes and the Woes. The names simply come from the fact that each of these verses begins with uh, essentially a blessing. The word Beatitude actually means consummate bliss, consummate happiness. And so you have these series of verses that all talk about what is bliss, what is blessing, what is happiness. The blessing, by the way, the word blessing is actually more literally translated spiritual happiness in the Greek. Spiritual happiness. And it's in that that we get our first clue in how to interpret these verses, the blessings, in other words, how to interpret what they're talking about. We're talking here about spiritual happiness. That's the sense of the word blessing. Now, the woe is simply alas, you know, woe is me, or alas. Judgment is another implication of that word in the Greek. It essentially means divine judgment. Woe, not in the sense of misery, not in the sense of I'm unhappy, but in the sense of divinely appointed judgment. And that's what a woe is. Only Luke gives us these woes. We've been talking as we've studied through Luke so far that there's obviously the Matthew account of this same sermon. Matthew has a great deal more detail than Luke does. And the general view is that Luke simply condensed it for the sake of his purpose in writing. He had a different purpose than Matthew, a different audience, 
And for his audience and for his purpose, he excluded a lot of detail that Matthew included because his detail was directed more toward a Jewish audience, whereas Luke's is directed more to a Gentile or Greek audience. And so Luke dismissed a lot of the detail that was very Jewish, that was very unique to the Jewish perspective. We're going to focus, of course, on what Luke provides because that's the gospel we're studying in. Luke, as I said, is the only one who gives any woes, and it's very effective. He uses them to punctuate the meaning of the, of the blessings. They go hand in hand, if you notice. The woes talk about the opposite condition of what was presented in each of the blessings. And so we're going to look at these contrasting views. Each of these four statements, each of the blessings, each of the Beatitudes is a paradox. And we can begin by looking at each one. For example, the first one it begins by listing something that's undesirable, being poor, for example, or being hungry, or being sorrowful, or being hated. Those are things we don't want. Those are things we would not feel happy about, generally speaking, if they were happening to us. And yet, each of those statements then ends by saying, if you experience the first condition, then you will also experience its opposite. It's a paradox. How can I be poor and yet be rich? How can I be hungry and yet be satisfied? It's a paradox. You'd think you'd only could be one of the two, not both. But it's in the paradox that we get the answer to what these statements really mean. It's in the paradox that we can really understand what Christ is saying. By the way, I find these verses to be pretty effective family discipling material. You know, if your daughter comes to you and says, Daddy, there's a new toy out I really need to have, but I don't have enough money for it, I'll say, Blessed are the poor. It doesn't work very long, but at least you can get her off the topic for a minute. My son says he's hungry, can't wait for dinner. Blessed are those who hunger now, Daniel. Blessed. It's a paradox that we can understand in this way. We're going to have to explore each one in detail in order to fully appreciate what's being said here and not to make some of the mistakes that many people make when they look at these verses. And in fact, I want to start with that. I want to start with how you don't interpret these verses. I want to start with the way you get them wrong because that's the most common way they're taught. For example, this teaching is not simply um, a state of mind issue. You know, one, one view says that we need to just simply come in and look at what Jesus is saying in each of these and consider it turning lemons into lemonade. You've heard that kind of a phrase before, right? Life gets you down, just look on the bright side. Find something positive about your circumstances. That's effectively the modern message of the church. His sermon here, though, is not a sermon on happiness in life. It's not simply a matter of convincing ourselves to take a better attitude into our life's trials. That's not the point of Jesus' message. Unfortunately, as I said, that's a message of a lot of pulpits today. That if we could just think our way out of a problem, if we could just gain a better attitude, all life's troubles just fade away. That's not what's being said here. It's as if Jesus and his message was delivered merely to gain us an attitude correction. That that's the main purpose in this sermon. That's one error. And the reason the error is there, the reason that is not correct, is because it focuses exclusively on us. It takes the perspective that what Jesus is preaching in the sermon is it is up to us to improve our circumstances. It is up to us in the way we see the world or in the way we interpret our circumstances to make things better for us. Well, folks, anytime the gospel message, anytime any aspect of the scripture comes back to telling you it's about you, you're already wrong. I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it got, where it's coming from. But if the message somehow becomes it's about you, then you're wrong. Stop there and go back and figure out what went wrong in the message. Because the gospel is not about us. It's not about what we do for ourselves in any sense. The second error interpreting these verses is to say that Jesus is promising us a trouble-free Christian life. 
that he is promising us one of bliss, of financial well-being, of financial blessing on earth. That's typically how it's interpreted. So, in other words, the church might be told that Jesus is simply telling us that a good Christian will see riches in this life. A good Christian will always have enough food in this life. Uh, a Christian in this life will never be hated. That's not the message. That, that has nothing to do with what Christ is talking about. I will tell you, I think the church today is inundated with this message even more so than the first one. Because it feeds our pride. Because we like it. Well, who would not like someone coming up to you and saying, God wants to make you rich? It's, it's not in our nature to hear that message and say, oh, that sounds wrong. I don't like that. Now, back somewhere in the back of your mind, the Holy Spirit may, may prick you a little bit and say, you really think that's true? Does that really make sense? And so you have some doubt, but you can overcome that doubt. If you like what you're hearing, you'll believe it. You'll, you'll push aside the Holy Spirit's conviction. Every time the word blessing is used in the minds of some people, they think of material blessing. They think of money, power, wealth in some sense. What did we say the word was defined as, though, in the Greek? What does the word blessing mean? Spiritual blessing. A spiritual happiness. Something coming to you from God of a spiritual nature, not a materialistic nature. These are false, unbiblical teachings. Teachers that twist the scripture and change its meaning to suit their purposes are merely pandering to an audience who wants to hear what they like. That's not what the scripture is saying here. Christ is not suggesting that our life on earth will be without trial, without suffering. He's not suggesting we'll be rich. He's not suggesting we'll always have enough food. And you only have to look outside the doors of this building to know that that's true. To find examples of people all over the world who are Christian but are not necessarily rich. Far from it. Who are in poverty. To find people who are true committed believers and sometimes they have trouble finding enough food for their family. Now, I'm not saying that God is going to turn his back on those people to, to an extent that he has forsaken them. But what I'm saying is his first and primary concern is not your material needs. His first and foremost concern is not how much stuff you have. His first and foremost concern is your spiritual well-being. Because that's what's eternal. This goes away. This dies. This building burns up one day. This world gets replaced with a new world one day. And he's not particularly concerned about how long those things last or in how much you benefit from those things. He's concerned about your spiritual well-being because that's what is eternal. And that, this is a message about spiritual happiness, eternal things. Now, the proper interpretation of Jesus' statements requires, number one, that we understand he's talking about spiritual issues. And number two, we have to recognize who he's talking to. If you remember, if you notice back in the verses I read, it says at the very beginning, it says in the verse 20, he turned his gaze toward his disciples. Now, we said last week that we defined our terms. Disciple means anyone who follows Christ. Apostle refers to the specific 12 men he picked from amongst his disciples. But once he picked the 12 men, he begins to use the word disciple in Scripture to talk about them specifically. See my point? Before he had his 12 picked out, he just had a multitude of people that followed him wherever he went. And the Scriptures refer to that crowd as his disciples. So it's generally a term for a pupil, a student, someone who follows Christ. But last week he took aside 12 men from amongst those disciples and he called them his apostles. Apostle means someone sent out with a message or commissioned with a ministry of some kind. But from this point forward, the word disciple in Scripture is usually meant to just refer to the 12. 
as a simple way of referring to them. The context will tell us when he's talking about just the 12 or a larger group. Usually it's the 12. So now we're actually going to change that definition a little bit, start using the word disciple to refer to the apostles. And that's who he's turned to here. He's turned his gaze. Now that word in, the words being used here in the Greek, turning and his gaze. When you look at those two words in the Greek, it's really a very specific action. It's essentially him lifting up his eyes. The word turning really means literally raising up. So he lifts up his eyes and gaze is like an eye-to-eye contact. The way we might say this in the English would be something like, he looked them in the eyes and said. That would be essentially the way you would say this in English. The most literal way to translate the Greek. Luke's point here is that Jesus' audience is specifically his apostles. He's taken them aside and he's saying some very specific things. But it's also going to be applicable to you and I today when we play that same role of a man or a woman who goes out with a ministry to spread the good news or a ministry to do God's work in some other way. As I mentioned at the beginning today, I want you to imagine how difficult it was going to be for Christ to prepare these men for ministry. And he's taking just a moment now, having just selected them. Last week we read this verses where he did that. And he's beginning the very beginning of his training. This is like day one of the class. This is their first day in college, if you will, seminary, if you will. And he's pulled them aside and he's talking to them directly. And he says, you all have been raised in a culture that's completely distorted the truth of who God is and what he thinks righteousness looks like. These religious leaders that you have, these Pharisees that surround you and tell you every day about what righteousness is, these men are telling you to do your works in order to be righteous, to keep the law in order to be righteous, as if you have the power within yourself to make yourself righteous. And that's what they've grown up with. And he's got to completely erase that perspective and replace it with a new one. The Pharisees of the day, they demanded that the more righteous you appeared, the more righteous of an impression you gave through your knowledge and your attempts to obey the law, that was the measure by whether or not you should be honored by whether or not you were worthy of respect, by whether or not you were somebody who was going to be pleasing to God. Remember the Pharisees? They liked to sit in the front row because the front row was going to be reserved for them as a means of giving them honor. Christ even talks about them later in Matthew. If you were to go to Matthew 23, you'd, say, you'd see Jesus saying this in verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you Do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. Very interesting, isn't it? He says they're in authority. They're teaching from the seat of Moses. So when they teach the word of God, listen to them. Just don't do anything they do. Which I find a very interesting statement. He says, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broadened their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. These were ways you showed piousness in that day. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. You see his point? They love the honor that comes from being seen as righteous and holy and the men of God, but they don't live it. It's not truly in them. It's all a show. It's all for what gain, what gain they get out of men today. That's the key to understanding these verses in the Beatitudes. Think of a culture that assumes that's what righteousness is. Try to imagine for a moment that that's what you've grown up being taught. So right now, think in your mind, righteousness is all about how I look to the outside world and what my position of honor is. And that's what I'm supposed to copy. Now Jesus is going to undo that. Look what he does. 
He takes a paradox that describes righteousness in eternal terms that results in eternal life and he compares it to what's done for men's sake in earthly terms by these false teachers and false leaders. And by contrasting them, he's going to show you, particularly through the woes later on, where real righteousness comes from and what unrighteousness looks like in this world. He begins in verse 20, as I said, saying, Blessed are the poor, for they have the kingdom of heaven. Matthew actually records this statement a little differently, and it's important because it adds another piece. Matthew says in verse, in fact, if you want to go to Matthew 5 and kind of put your finger in Matthew 5, we're going to kind of flip back and forth occasionally, because Matthew's catch or his, his take on this account is helpful because he adds some detail that sometimes is very illuminating. In Matthew 5, verse 3, he says that Jesus spoke, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So the first thing you have to understand is we're talking here about spiritual poverty, not earthly poverty. Not riches in terms of your bank account. Poverty in terms of a spiritual issue. And that issue is being willing to recognize and to recognize in yourself that you're miserable and that you're poor and that you're desperate spiritually. That's what poverty in a spiritual sense means. That we all have this evil, unbelieving heart when we're born. That our nature from the day we're born is to be predisposed against God. To be an enemy of God, Paul calls us. That we've all been born spiritually empty and utterly hopeless in poverty. You were born into spiritual poverty. That's what Christ said. Now, why are you blessed to be born in that sense? Why is that a blessing? Why is that good? Because in the recognition of it, in the seeing of it, in the sensing of it, in the knowledge of it, in the being willing to admit it, you now have hope to know the truth. You now are ready for something better. But see, that's not what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees had exactly the opposite perspective about themselves. True righteousness lies in Christ alone, by faith. But before you can understand that and much less accept it, you have to be willing to acknowledge that your own inability is there to please God. You have to be willing to accept the fact that you can't do it on your own before you're willing to accept that Christ can do it for you. Until you're ready to say, I'm spiritually poor, I have no hope to save myself, until you do that, you're not looking for a solution. You know, that's the the basic equation here. You have to recognize you have a need before you go looking for something to fill the need. But if you don't think you have a need, then when someone comes along and says, by the way, I'm knocking on your door, I'd like to tell you about the one way to heaven, Christ. Well, thanks, I already got a way. That's what people do. They don't listen to the message because they don't have a need, because they don't recognize their own spiritual poverty. We call this repentance. Not repentance from a specific sin. I'm sorry I hit my sister. Okay, well, that's repentance of a different kind. But repentance in the big sense of the word. I repent of the fact that I'm working my way to heaven. I repent of any attempt to earn my own salvation. I turn from a life that's apart from God and I turn toward a life through faith in Christ toward God. That act of turning from our sin, turning from our sin of unbelief, of believing we can earn our own salvation, is the first step to salvation. Of repentance, we call it. Remember the Pharisees, though? They're constantly preaching a message of works, of thinking that they are spiritually rich. They think that they have achieved through their works a certain bank account of righteousness. You've heard people talk about, in some sense, a 
scale in the sky kind of view of salvation, right? As long as my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll make it into heaven. That's a general perspective that the world carries with them if they don't know the truth. But how many people have you ever met who hold that view and also believe that their bad is currently outweighing their good? I don't find too many people that way. They always assume at least they're on the good side of that equation any given day you talk to them. That's viewing yourself spiritually rich. That's viewing yourself as having no need of being able to care for yourself spiritually, of working yourself to heaven. And Christ said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize they have a need. And what happens if you are blessed by that spiritual need? What happens? You know and realize and accept the truth that the gospel message can save you, and so you will inherit the kingdom of God. You will have paradise. You will have spiritual blessing. You will have eternity with God on the basis of His work, not your own. Jump down to verse 24 and look at the quick contrast in Luke 24, chapter 6, verse 24. Christ says, Those who are rich are receiving their comfort in full. Those who walk around this world right now and say to themselves, I have need of nothing. I am, I am rich. I'm doing my work. I'm getting myself to heaven. You know where they're getting their comfort from? Here and now. From those who honor them with the front row seats. From those who honor them saying rabbi when they walk by. That's their honor. That's their payment. They're getting their comfort. Enjoy it while it lasts. That's what he's saying to those who think they're rich. Christ says something very similar to a church in Laodicea in chapter 3 of Revelation. Listen to these two verses out of chapter 3 when he sends this letter to this church. He says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's talking in spiritual terms to that church just as we are today about what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Luke. You think you've got no need and you're poor, blind, naked, miserable and going to hell. Open up your eyes and you'll know the difference and you'll understand that you have real needs and I can fulfill them. Those who are content to earn their own righteousness and to trust in their own ability are blind to their own predicament. And they're naked, and that means they're exposed to God's judgment. But the one who's willing to recognize that they're spiritually poor and they trust in Christ, to them comes the kingdom of God. To them, they will have spiritual wealth. The second beatitude follows the same pattern. You kind of get the idea now? You come up here and do this now, right? Look at the second one. In the next verse, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger, for they will be satisfied. Uh, Again, I invite you to look at Matthew. Uh, Flip over again to 5, verse 6. You'll notice in verse 6 he says, Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here again, Matthew giving us a little additional detail, which helps us understand we're talking about a spiritual issue here. Not hunger in the physical sense, not food, but hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who understand the truth will hunger and thirst for the true righteousness that only comes from God. You know, a Christian, I think, understands this kind of hunger almost instinctively. Even a new Christian begins to sense this right away. A Christian yearns for true righteousness. In our world, I mean, you you watch things going on on the television, you watch things going on in the courts, or you see things going on in the streets of our country, and a true Christian wants to see the right thing done. 
They have a yearning to see truth reign and God's justice done. And they get upset when it doesn't happen that way. But mostly, we yearn to see it in ourselves. And that's the fundamental difference between a Christian and the world. We thirst and hunger for righteousness in ourselves. We don't like when we sin. We feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit when we sin. We don't like the fact that we can't live up to the things we know we're supposed to live up to. It bothers us. That's the hunger and the thirst for righteousness. But the unbelieving world, they have no desire, no special desire for true righteousness. They don't even know what that is. They don't even look for it in the world, much less in themselves. That's a foreign thought. Remember the Pharisees? They would seek after a form of righteousness, but it was only the kind they could achieve. It was a completely contrived kind of righteousness. They established the rules that they liked, then they followed those rules, and they said, that defines righteousness. Well, you don't, guess what? You don't get to make the rules. We don't define righteousness for ourselves. God defines and sets the standard for righteousness and then expects us to hold, it, hold up to it. And anything short, any action short of what God defines as true righteousness is sin. And if you break one law, you've broken the whole law, Paul says. That being the case, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. That is why we yearn for true righteousness. But remember the woe? Those who have been satisfied here, one day they will not be satisfied. They will hunger. And that is the truth here again. The men who live their whole life obeying their own rules and making that the definition of righteousness will one day find out that they don't know what true righteousness is. The you know, one thing I find interesting about the world is they only obey their own laws and rules when it suits their selfish interests. Even their own rules are breakable, really, when, when they need them to be. That was most apparent to me as I watched the television recently with the floods in New Orleans. People who are otherwise willing to obey the law uh, most of the time, as soon as the, the restraints were gone, as soon as the police weren't around, as soon as the alarms didn't work anymore, well... No reason to obey the law anymore. I want that in the store. I break the window, I take it. Right? The law hadn't changed, but so what? My, my desires override any concern I might have for obeying the law. There's no hunger and thirst for righteousness in that person. There's only a selfish interest for what they think is right in the moment. It's all relative, right? All of a sudden, I'm hungry enough, it makes stealing food right. If that were the way the law worked, if that's what righteousness looked like, we would always find some excuse to do what we wanted to do. The woe in verse 25, as I've already said, it really amplifies this point. Those who are satisfied now by the world, by what they get in this world, by the kind of righteousness they can obtain in this world, they're going to have no part in the true righteousness that does come one day. And as I said, though, we don't have to wait for that day. As a Christian, the good news for you right now is you don't have to wait for Christ's return, for true righteousness to actually be evident in the world today. You have that benefit within yourself. By the Holy Spirit's power, we actually get a little taste, a little sense. The work begins, if you will, along a path toward righteousness. Paul says he will eventually, God will eventually complete the good work he has begun in us. Upon Christ's return, upon our glorification, that work is complete. But in the meantime, we're still seeing it come bit by bit by bit as we yield to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, the paradox here again is those who hunger now for true righteousness, they're going to be the only ones who ever really experience it in the end. Whereas those who are filled now by the world's righteousness, they'll be the ones yearning for it one day. The third one, Christ says in the third beatitude, Blessed are those who weep now, for they will laugh. This one's a little more interesting, actually. It's a little more difficult. Why would weeping now guarantee laughter later? Are we supposed to be sad Christians? 
You know, you're kind of tempted to come to that conclusion. You're looking at that saying, well, I've got to have some kind of remorse in order to be guaranteed of laughter later. And in fact, when you look at the woe, why would laughing now guarantee weeping later? Again, we're hard-pressed to put this in a spiritual context at first. Well, we know we're talking about spiritual issues. We've said that already. And therefore, we have to think of this weeping as spiritual sorrow. Spiritual sorrow. Paul mentions a kind of spiritual sorrow in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this in verse 9, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul here is is contrasting what God does in our hearts with worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow being that kind of regret we have when we make a mistake. When we break a rule and get caught. When the consequences of our sin come back upon us, then we feel sorry. That's the sorrow that Esau felt when he realized he had sold his birthright. He wasn't sorry that that he had forsaken God. What he was sorry about was he lost the inheritance. He was sorry about what he lost materially. That's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a kind of sadness brought about by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that sorrow, Paul says, leads to repentance and ultimately to salvation. That's godly sorrow. Those who experience godly sorrow now, who weep over their own sin, who are sad about the fact that they are a sinner, those are the people, because of the conviction of their sins, those are the ones being saved. Those are the ones that God is preparing for eternity. Those, on the other hand, who laugh, spiritually speaking, who think they don't have a care in the world, who assume that all is just going to turn out well right to the end, they're not going to be expecting what comes. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Talking about the new world that God will eventually replace this one with. That's the world you and I have as our inheritance. That's why we will no longer weep or cry. There will be no pain, no suffering, no sin. But the sinful world today who has no care is going to realize ultimately in eternity how wrong they were. And then finally, Jesus says we're to be considered blessed, spiritually happy, when men hate us, when they insult us or they separate from us. And when that happens in the name of the Son. Again, another paradox, maybe a little easier to understand. But I want to ask you a question. Do you really, truly, can you honestly say you'd feel blessed if you were hated because of Christ? You know, when your child comes home from school or, or from the park, maybe, or from a friend's house, if you have this experience, and they're crying because they were mocked, or because they were excluded in some sense from a play game or whatever was going on, and if you find out later that exclusion or that mocking came as a function of their faith, they were being made fun of because of what they believed, or because of the lifestyle we choose to live in honoring Christ. Can you honestly say when that happens in that moment, and you feel your heart goes out for your child in that moment, that you're happy? I mean, you know, you you understand the words, you see the words on the page, but can you really say that that's the feeling you have in that moment? When you personally lose a promotion, perhaps, because of your faith and the stand you take in the office against those who have a different perspective, or when you lose a a good assignment on the same basis, or... When your faith is an obstacle in your workplace for some other reason, do you honestly feel blessed? Do you honestly feel happy about that? Now, I'm not talking here about suffering because of your own mistakes. Christ made that point up front, didn't he? 
When you do it because of the, the name of God, because of Him, He says, because of my sake. So we don't get it, you know, next time you're hauled into traffic court and you receive a stiff fine for speeding, you can't stand up before the judge and say, well, at least my reward in heaven will be great because I'm being persecuted here. Okay? We're talking about persecution, not prosecution. Okay? Prosecution is legitimate if you committed a crime. Now, we're talking here about the fact that someone would turn on you simply because of your faith. You know what the sad truth in America, though, today, in my experience, I think it is sad, so few Christians can relate to this. Truly, if we're honest with ourselves, so few Christians can ever relate to the idea of being persecuted for their faith. Now, you may be tempted to say, well, that's because we live in such a good country. We live in a country that, frankly, does, you know, allows freedom of religion and respects Christianity. In fact, a country that you could argue may have been founded with Christian values. So, why would you blame the Christian church in America for not feeling enough persecution, Steve? That seems a bit unfair, wouldn't you say? Well, I would agree that in most places in the country, particularly in South Texas, that you know you can find a lot of people who are accepting of your faith. I agree with that. But honestly, I don't think that's the real issue. I think the real issue is not that the world accepts Christians. I think the problem is that very few Christians actually stand out from the world. Very few of us ever really make a stand for Christ in any meaningful way. We, you know, we do it in here, maybe, to some limited extent. But as soon as we walk out these doors, you'd be hard-pressed to pick out a Christian, wouldn't you? I mean, you should know you're a Christian. Try that. Try going into H-E-B and finding Christians just on the basis of what they're doing in the store. Maybe you'd have to watch for a while. My guess is you would never know. Or in your workplace. Or in your school. Or anywhere. Christians blend in the woodwork better than anyone I've ever met. Our culture now is about keep your religion to yourself and go along with the crowd and don't try to stir things up and don't try to give anybody a reason to dislike you. If we really led a Christ-like life in all respects, everywhere we did, in what we said, what we did, how we lived our life, would we have as many friends as we have? Would we be as accepted as we might be now? And I'm not talking about running around and making our faith known by casting harsh judgments on people. You shouldn't do that. You, sh- you know, I'm not talking about being a pain. All right, that's not going to. That's not again. We're back to prosecution, not persecution. Okay, that that's just asking for trouble. I'm not talking about offending people. Jesus actually deals with that very problem later in this chapter, so we'll cover that again next time. But I'm talking uh, here about something that's a little more subtle. And also, I'm not suggesting you you should be stoned. I'm not saying that until you're you know, burned at the stake, you're not getting persecuted. There's more subtle forms than that. What I'm really talking about here is when, for example, recently I'm sitting in a conference room at my workplace among other managers. I'm a manager where I work, and there's other managers who work with me. And we have an executive in the room, and it's a little chit-chatty kind of moment. And so the executive looks around to some of the other managers and says, hey, what are you all doing for Halloween this year? Are your kids going to go out trick-or-treating, blah, 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 blah. Now, he knows I'm a Christian. And he knows I'm probably the only one in this group that's a Christian. And he goes around the table to two or three of the people asking this very, you know, innocent kind of, your kids trick-or-treat, what do you all do? What's it going to be dressed up as? And then he looks pointedly at me and says, Steve, you don't celebrate Halloween, do you? Now, what do you think his point was? Right? I mean, why did he ask me that question? And why bring it up? My answer was, no, I don't. And I left it at that. You know, going back to what I said earlier, we don't have to make a pain of ourselves. I didn't have to sit there and say, and none of you should either. Right? 
The point was to simply answer the, the question truthfully, but what was his reason in doing that? You know, I would argue that's a very subtle and maybe not very significant form of persecution. I mean, he may not have even seen it that way, but in his mind, he knew I saw this differently and it was important for him to bring that out in the group. To what, to what end? I'm not sure. I'm not worried about it at all. But my point is this. How did he know to do that about, to say that to me? And I'm not, you know, I don't want to be patting myself on the back. I, I'm not trying to say that somehow I live up to this ideal in all regard either. But at least he knew enough about me to know that I was not likely to be accepting of Halloween, though I had never talked to him about Halloween in my life. That's the kind of experience that Christ says you should rejoice over. Now, in the moment, I didn't feel like rejoicing. I'll give you that. But why? Why should I rejoice over the fact that that experience happened? Christ gives the answer. He says, because the prophets likewise had similar experiences in their time. Huh? Well, so what? The fact that it's happened before, I still don't get the connection. Why am I rejoicing now when it happens to me simply because it happened to someone earlier? What's the connection? He's illustrating that men and women of God, people who make a public show of their faith, who make a public stand for God, they will always be persecuted. And that when the world hates you because of Christ, they are unknowingly testifying that you are a child of God. Though they don't understand it. Though they would never recognize that that's what they've done. They have just testified to the world that you're a child of God by the fact that they persecuted you over the name of Christ. John 15:18 says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. This is Christ talking. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. So in other words, do you understand the joy in this? How often do you ever experience, and you know, don't have to raise your hand, but I'll bet you the answer is 100% in this room. How many of you have ever had a moment where you wondered if you're really saved? Did it really take? You know, maybe I didn't do it right. Maybe I didn't mean it when I said it. Maybe, you know, all of this bad stuff I've been doing lately, maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Maybe it's not genuine. Maybe the whole thing's a fraud. Maybe Jesus wasn't the Son of God. Maybe this whole thing is just invented. Now, if you're honest, you've had that thought someday. And hopefully in that same moment you go, no, no, that's not right. But still, the doubt came into your mind. Do you know how you can get proof that Christ is real, that the enemy is real, and that there is a spiritual battle going on, and that the child of God will be persecuted by the enemy? Make a stand for Christ and watch what the world does to you. And Jesus says, when that happens, we, uh, you should jump with joy. You just got proof that this is true and that you're a child of God. Because if you were of the world, they wouldn't hate you. How many world religions exist out there and people are just happy to coexist with those, but Christianity shows up and we're the enemy? That's your proof. Now, why do you, why do you jump for joy over that? Why are you happy about that? Because you just had another opportunity to confirm the inheritance that's waiting for you in eternity. You've just got another moment in your life where you had a chance to say, you know what? This is true and I've got God waiting for me on the other end of this body and He's going to give me the riches of the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. And don't worry that it's happening. It happens to all men of God and women of God. And then he adds in the woe, in fact, he says, when men talk well of you and love you and think grand things of you, that's when you need to be worried. 
That's when you have reason to question whether you're really taking a stand for Christ, whether you really believe what you say you believe, because they're loving the world, and the God and the world are opposed to one another. When the world embraces you, when it loves your teaching, when it agrees with all you say, when it shows up in droves, and I would argue as well for many ministers, when, when they beat down the doors of your stadium seating church, there's a problem somewhere. These are what the, this is what the Pharisees were doing in their day. The Pharisees who gained the praises of men, who were comfortable with both the friends of the Roman Empire, with the governors that sat in authority over them. They would sit comfortably and interact with those men just as easily as they did with the other false teachers of their day and the common man of, of, of Israel. They were friends to whoever they needed to be to satisfy their, their need for power and control. They were false teachers in their day. So Jesus, as we conclude with the Beatitudes, Jesus is beginning this preparation, this training for the disciples. And he does it first and foremost in the first day by challenging what they think righteousness is. By going straight at them and against the mores, against the cultural view of the time of what does it mean to be righteous. And he tore down every pillar he could in four quick verses on the Beatitudes. Spiritually, he wanted them to understand that their focus was going to have to shift from earthly issues to eternal issues. From you know, desires of what they could eat, desires of where they would sleep, desires of how powerful and famous they were among the people, and instead to focus on true righteousness, true godliness, on their source of that righteousness, on Christ himself. When we leave here today, my hope would, that, would be that out of what we've read in the Scripture today, we would all leave today focused maybe refocused on things eternal. On not what you're going to eat today and not what your paycheck is going to look like next week, but we care about those things. Those are not the eternal things that should matter to us in the most sincere and serious ways. We should have confidence in our spiritual riches without regard to our earthly riches. And we should not be obsessed with the materialism of this world because to the extent we focus on that, we've taken time away from what God might have us do otherwise in a spiritual sense in growing ourselves, or in ministering to people around us. I would also hope we could walk out of here with a hunger for true righteousness. Because what you hunger for, you go after. What you hunger for, you're driven by. For living a Christ-like life. And for reflecting that in the world. And I hope we continue to weep over our sin. To never be satisfied as long as there's sin in us. As long as there's anything we could be doing in a better way. And look forward to the day that we'll be able to laugh and enjoy an eternity without sin, which is promised to all of us. And finally, I hope you do expect that as you do these things, the world's going to hate you. To some degree, in some way, maybe subtly, but it'll be there. But when that day comes, we're suffering for the name of our Lord, and in that we rejoice because it confirms we are His. And that one day we will have no suffering. Proof that we are children of God. And we are. And that's why we gathered here. And that's why he is among us. Let's go to him in prayer as Daniel comes up to finish with a song. And I, I do hope you have time to remain around afterward and visit just a little. We enjoyed you being here. And I pray that God worked through the word today to bring you something you needed as well. Father, I open up in prayer thanking you for the word. And so, Father, I close as well thanking you for the word of God. Father, it is by the power of the Word that You promise to change us, to mold us into the image of Your Son. 
And though sometimes, Father, we hear the words that Christ spoke to His disciples and we wonder how we could ever live up to the expectations He had, Father, it is a comforting reminder to know that He didn't expect His disciples, His apostles, to live up to those standards even in their day. Much less that we would live up to them in our day in every respect either. But Father, the fact that we cannot be Christ in all that we do, we know it does not excuse our lack of attempts. That though we may not reach the standard, we are commanded by You to make every effort to listen to the Holy Spirit, to make wise choices, to forego the things this world tells us are so important. That that is our responsibility, Father, in response to what You've done for us on the cross. So, we take that cross up. We walk out of this place, Father, having been edified by the reading of Your Word, having been grown by what the Holy Spirit has taught us through the Word, but now, Father, with an obligation to live it out. We pray, Father, for the power by the Holy Spirit to do so. We pray, Father, that as we do walk out of here, that we would reflect You. That the world might know who we are. Not in a prideful way, Father. We do not desire to reflect You poorly. We do not want to enter into the world in such a way that they do not desire to know You, but would push us away instead. No, Father, we want to be one who reflects You, but reflects the love You showed us. The compassion, the mercy, the knowledge that we were sinners before we ever knew You. That, in fact, we hated You when You but loved us enough to die on the cross. Let that be the thought, Father, we bring to others, that we would be long-suffering and patient with them as You were with us. But neither, Father, should we compromise in our witness so that they cannot tell that You are in us, that we are not so accepting and so willing to make friends that we forget, Father, that in the making of friends, we are first and foremost about changing hearts. That our witness, Father, cannot do what You would have it do if it cannot be seen. Thank You, Lord, that we're here. Thank You, Father, that uh, in this morning we had an opportunity to meet as we planned. And I pray, Father, in the weeks to come, You continue to help us grow, to make better use of the space You've given us and the provisions in this space, to be prepared to receive and care for those You'd send our way. Most of all, Father, I pray that we would continue to devote ourselves to the Word of God and be thankful for the opportunity You've given us in it. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.